This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 17th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. One fact about inflation that's not well appreciated is that it also inflates government snooping into some of your private affairs. How? In the case of the Bank Secrecy Act, Cato's Nick Anthony explains how decade-old provisions are subjecting more and more of our transactions to suspicionless, to say nothing of warrantless, federal surveillance. What is the Bank Secrecy Act? The Bank Secrecy Act was a law put in place in 1970 where banks and other financial institutions were essentially required to record and report on financial activity of pretty much all Americans and originally was put in place to try to combat money laundering and moving money to foreign accounts. But today it's become something very different. Okay. So, uh, $10,000 in the 1970s, uh, our colleague Jennifer Schulp has pointed out, you could buy two brand new Corvettes for that amount of money, and $10,000 doesn't quite go that far anymore. Yeah, it's it was arguably a high amount of money at the time. We even had Supreme Court justices review the Bank Secrecy Act and argue that because it was $10,000, it was sufficiently high so that it wasn't an undue burden. but. If we think about it today, that's not nearly the same amount of money. You cannot buy a brand new car for $10,000 just about in any case under the sun. And yet it's been unchanged all this time. We have had two large uh, periods of inflation uh, since the 1970s, including the one we're in right now, which is, of course, a 40-year high level of inflation. Um, that threshold of $10,000 has not changed with the inflation. Exactly. And it doesn't even matter if it's high inflation or low inflation. Any inflation increases this amount. So what was $10,000 back in the 70s should really be closer to $75,000 today. Or if we take that the opposite direction, if we look at $10,000 today, that would be more like $1,500 back in the 1970s. And where Supreme Court justices had argued that the $10,000 was quite high at the time, I find it very hard to believe that they would make the same argument if presented with $1,500. When it comes to financial privacy, of course, you talk about this quite a bit. I talked about this with Will Luther in the um sort of imagining the best and worst case scenarios for a central bank digital currency that could be programmed and tracked and uh, essentially all of your financial transactions would be uh, perhaps under a microscope, depending on who wanted to look at them and for what reasons. But we are in a situation now where decades after the Bank Secrecy Act is passed, uh, those same Supreme Court justices could not possibly argue that uh, $10,000 in the 1970s is anywhere near uh, the level of sufficient to protect most Americans' financial privacy. Exactly. And we can see that just from the sheer number of reports that are filed. In, I believe it was 2019, there was approximately 20 million reports filed uh, in response to the Bank Secrecy Act. So this including both uh, currency transaction reports at that $10,000 threshold and also suspicious activity reports. 
but we see just this huge pile, this huge haystack of reports that are being filed. And yet we're not really having that much action come out of it. There's even been studies performed where they saw the rising reports and yet falling money laundering investigations. You would think that if there is all this crime taking place that uh, supposedly justifies this reporting regime, we would see them go hand in hand. Yet all we're really seeing is rising reports. So what does the Bank Secrecy Act empower the government to do? Uh, You said that a lot of the reporting is suspicionless reporting. One, why do it if it's suspicionless? And two, what uh, actions uh, could the feds take in response to some particular report? Well, that's the big problem here is that it started with trying to combat uh, secret foreign accounts and, and money laundering. And it's essentially opened up this huge regime of financial surveillance that's been ongoing now for over 50 years, and we just haven't had any evidence that it's done that much good. There's anecdotes here and there of of different cases. For instance, uh, FinCEN, the the, uh, one charged with reviewing these reports, the agency charged with reviewing these reports, holds an awards ceremony for law enforcement uh, that actually make use of the data. But other than that, we're really not seeing that much net good come out of it. All we are seeing is this sweeping surveillance program. And we see that through the compliance industry that has come up that's now been uh, essentially deputized by the government through the Bank Secrecy Act as these law enforcement investigators. And we've seen this huge mound of data. But aside from that, we're not really seeing any benefit to the the general population out of this. And when it comes to financial privacy and the secrecy with which every American uh, ought to be entitled to engage in basic commerce in their lives, uh, we have the Biden administration and a not insignificant uh, share of the members of Congress saying, eh, 600 bucks is fine in a year. Exactly. It it really showcases, and, and you've talked about this before, this culture of surveillance that's now in the in the the present government. And it's something that I think is long past due for correction and long past due for an update. But the current government's attitude shows that this should have never been put in place because we could easily see today where if you made the case for a $600 threshold, well, later down the line, that's going to become a $100 threshold or a $50 threshold. And that's a horrible thing to even imagine, yet that's what we've seen in practice. And it's something that we have the evidence behind to know that it it is very real and very much on the table. Most Americans don't really follow this. And I think most Americans don't really care that much about it. Uh, What is your best case to an individual American saying, here are the reasons why you need to care about maintaining your own and uh, the, the privacy of those around you, of maintaining that financial privacy? That is the hardest thing about this is it's a reporting regime that's really in the shadows. It's something that it's not up in your face. It's not 
on the headlines. It's something that most people don't realize that's going on. Yet, if I was to point to one instance for what might be the best case to make for this, I think I would just point people in the direction of what happened just a few months ago in Canada when Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act to freeze the bank accounts of all the protesters that were out there. And this is something that it it takes place in, we see it in, in Russia, Sudan, China, or the like. We do not see it in one of the freest nations in the world. And for Canada to be the sixth freest nation in the world and to be freezing bank accounts, to be using financial activity as a tool to control the population, I think that should be a huge wake-up call for people in the United States because what gave them the ability to do this is very much ingrained in the U.S. legal system. And it's worth noting, I think, that uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, tax authorities, uh, and again, many members of Congress simply believe that by virtue of the existence of a pool of data uh, from which they can learn things, uh, they should be empowered to make use of that data for the purposes of more precisely taxing, for more precisely choosing uh, who to investigate for crimes uh, and any number of things, all without a warrant and all without suspicion. That's the one thing that I I think is the most unfortunate about the space is that we have people spending so much time thinking about what they could do that they're not stopping to think about what they should do. And we have a system in place in this country where Fourth Amendment protections make it so that normally, under most other circumstances, law enforcement has to have probable cause to make the case, get a warrant, and then go after a specific set of information. And yet it's been ruled by the Supreme Court that by the nature of financial information being held by a third party, being banks and financial institutions, that suddenly that right to privacy no longer applies. And I think now more than ever, it's time to show that this is not how the United States should be operating. And you you actually uh, made the case more narrowly, which is to say police need a warrant. Uh, there are other people who would say, no, the government needs a warrant. And yes, I, I fully agree with that. It should be any law enforcement investigators, anyone from from the government, if they want to seek out the information from from private individuals, they should need to provide a warrant. Is there anyone on Capitol Hill who's taking this seriously? I think it's slowly coming into recognition that this needs to be uh, a major change in the U.S. legal system. Uh, one example is Representative Warren Davidson. Uh, during the, the situation in Canada, uh, he introduced legislation to, to help protect um, help protect people who are holding, for instance, cryptocurrency in self-hosted wallets as a way to protect themselves from, from this type of financial control. And there's others that are waking up to it as well. And I think that as time goes on, there will at least I'm hopeful that as time goes on, there will be more efforts that come up to try to stop what is an unchecked use of power and an unchecked use of power that has been going on for just far too long. 
Nick Anthony is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.